Welcome to the ETAP Podcast, a service of the American Association of State Highway and Transportation Officials. Each month, we'll provide information and insight into environmental issues important to state transportation officials. So happy you can join us for the latest edition of the Ashto ETAP Podcast. My name is Bernie Wagenblast. This month, our guest is Tokes Omashakin, the director of the California Department of Transportation. In addition to all his responsibilities with Caltrans, Tokes is also the chair of Ashto's Active Transportation Council. Tokes, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Bernie. Thanks for having me on. Let's talk a little bit about active transportation. When you think of that, you think about bicycling and walking probably as the two most prominent modes of active transportation. Can you speak to how they fit into a a broader context of transportation, please? Sure. You know, when you think about transportation in this country, I mean, we've obviously come a long way in the last 50 to 60 years to the point where what we talked about in the 50s uh, with the Jetsons cartoons that we all remember, at least I remember some of those when I was a kid, when we saw the flying cars and, and you know, cars essentially being autonomous, we're, we're essentially there today. So transportation has come a long way. But one thing that's remained pretty constant is the fact that people walk and bike. Despite the advancements that we see in the auto industry, what's been a core of transportation that hasn't really changed much, even though we have things like micromobility today, with scooters, but nevertheless, people are going to walk places, people are going to bike places. And when you think about some of the numbers, 30% of all trips in this country are one mile or less of all the trips we make. 50% of all the trips we make in this country are three miles or less. There continues to be an opportunity, a clear opportunity for people to walk and bike places, but we have to build the facilities. We have to build places that support those trips, a mile, 30%, 50% at three miles or less. You know, a three mile bike trip is is 15 minutes. I mean, that's a 15 minute bike ride. So you, you know the opportunities are there, but we have to continue to build not only the facilities to help make it happen, but build communities as well that support those types of trips to happen in an active transportation way. Talking about communities, you know, sometimes we hear bike and pedestrian projects called transportation alternatives. But for many communities, and I'm thinking perhaps about communities that lack the economic prosperity of other neighborhoods, aren't bicycling and walking really more than just alternatives for those folks? (laughs) I would say so, Bernie. (laughs) That's another one of those things where the history behind some of those names I haven't been a big fan of, to, to be honest with you. At some point in time, we call them transportation enhancements as well. Um, And then it went from enhancements to alternatives. You know, if I had the magic wand or had the (laughs) ability to to rewrite federal law or change the way it's written as it's coming up, and I may have a little bit of influence of that with my role as chair of the Active Transportation Council, I would call these transportation essentials. uh, Because for many communities across the country, that's what these are. They're an essential part of how people get about. You know, when you think about communities like, uh, for example, in New York, where 50%, 50% of the households in New York don't own a car. Uh, When you think about uh, DC, it's close to 40%. Philly, it's 30%, where people do not own a car. So how do they get about? It's transit, it's walking, it's biking. But it's not just those big cities that we think about all the time. You know, that's where our mind automatically goes to is, oh, yeah, I mean, Mm -hmm. those places, of course, they don't have a car. But when you come to the middle belt of America, 
or you come to the southern part of America, Akron, Ohio, 15% of people who live in Akron do not own a car. And sometimes that's by choice. And sometimes that's just by the economic situation or status that they're in. Mobile, Alabama, 10%. Uh, Glendale, California, and Pasadena, California, 12%. I mean, so there are a lot of pockets across the country where double digits of people don't own a car, either by choice or by the uh, the fact that they can't afford to. Calling it transportation alternatives or an enhancement, it's not quite fitting. <laughs> I mean, these are essential. These are essential part of um, of how people live and how how people get about uh, very much in their in their community. As we mentioned, and as you mentioned, you're the chair of the Active Transportation Council, and the council is going to be playing a big role in the next round of updates for the Ashto Green Book. Now, for those who don't know, the Green Book serves as a guide to highway and street design. Tell us, if you would, a bit about the expanding role of the council and how Ashto sees an integrated approach to planning and engineering for all modes as being important. Thanks for that question, Bernie. So Ashto's come a long way. Ashto is you know, an organization that's probably 105 years old, I think, uh, maybe this year. And there's been a lot of talk in our industry, uh, as you know, over the last 30 to 40 years to become for our city and state and federal departments and NGOs to become more focused on uh, becoming more multimodal. And it's been a lot of talk and not a lot of action, in my opinion. But in the last decade and a half, especially uh, with Ashto, Ashto should get a lot of credit for making the, the shifts that they've made, the leadership there. Jim Tyman and his predecessor, Bud Wright, they're very heavily involved in some of these shifts. But about four or five years ago, Ashto decided to completely reorganize and change their makeup from being a little, you know, very sort of highway centric and highway engineer focused to, you know, looking at all modes of transportation and elevating active transportation. One of the first steps they did was allow the creation of a multimodal task force. I headed up that task force about four or five years ago. But even during the process of creating just the task force, they said, you know, look, we're going to completely reorganize. We're going to create a council on public transportation. We're going to have one on active transportation. And these councils will be at the sort of the policy level of the organization, informing and advising the rest of Ashto and its members on how to advance multimodal transportation. And Kudos to them, went through with it. It's been the Council on Active Transportation has been around for three years now. For the first two years of that council, I was the vice chair. And fortunately, over the last year, I've been the, the vice chair. But the meat, if you will, of what we're going to really be focused on in the months and years to come, the, the really important part to me is not just advancing the work in general around safety and, and key issues like that, but it's to me really the publications, the guidance documents that come out of Ashto. You know, I've been around transportation now for about 20 years. And, you know, regardless of whether you're in a public works at a city government or you're at a state department of transportation or at a federal agency, one thing that you will see when you walk in an engineer's office are those green books. The, it's the holy grail of uh, decision making for a transportation engineer. And so we're going to get a chance to influence that uh, more than ever before. The people who are very engaged in the active transportation and the public transportation space. So it's one of the things that I'm, I'm really excited about that we get to influence and, and impact in the 
coming uh, months and years ahead. When we look at the the data that comes out about transportation and transportation safety in particular, we've been seeing that overall traffic-related fatalities and serious and disabling injuries, injuries have been trending in the downward direction, which is, of course, where everyone wants to see it. But when you break that down a little bit more and you look at the case for pedestrians and bicyclists, especially in the lower socioeconomic communities, that's not happening. Can you comment a bit about that and state how DOTs can tackle this challenge of trying to get those rates down lower for the bicyclists and the pedestrians? This is one of the biggest dilemmas we have right now in the transportation space is how we address this particular issue that you raise. When you think about the fatalities that are happening in this country on the transportation front, we're averaging about 36,000 people, 36,000 people, believe it or not, Bernie, every year dying on our transportation network. And in California, we represent 10% of that out of the whole country. So we're talking 3,600 people die in California on our transportation system. But, you know, the the even more alarming part, uh, when you sort of break down the numbers a little bit even more, is 12% of all trips in the country, 12% are active transportation related. So people who are walking, biking. But even though it's only 12% of all trips, 20% of all fatalities in the country are walking and biking related. So you can see that it's disproportionate, even though it's uh, only 12% of trips, 20% of fatalities, and that number is rising. Um, It's going in the wrong direction. For California, those numbers are even more alarming. Out of the 10 people who die every single day on the transportation network in California, nearly three of them are people who are walking or biking or trying to get access to transit. So that's almost 30% uh, in California whereas the nation's at 20%. So we've got a huge problem here that we need to spend a lot more attention, put a lot more attention to. But look, for me, you know, when you've got a problem, especially in this space, I think your actions, your policies, and your resources should guide where those challenge areas are, where those problem areas are. You know, so what what kind of actions are you taking? What what are your policies doing? And, And where are you putting resources? And resources meaning personnel, meaning funding, where are they being geared? And in California, one of the things that since I've been in in this role and I'm coming up on 11 months, getting close to a year in this job, uh, one of the things that I've been fortunate to be able to do is, number one, some of my predecessors worked on creating a chief safety officer position. I was fortunate enough to sort of bring that to the finish line and hired one earlier this year before the onset of COVID and everything else. Uh, So we've got one in place and that person, their job essentially eight hours a day or however long they work in a day is to make sure that we're making the the right changes, the right advancements on the safety front. We've put together a safety action plan. We are finalizing our strategic highway safety plan, a plan that you put together every five years on addressing safety issues. And we're doing it not in a vacuum. I mean, we're working with local government We're working with the Highway Patrol. We're working with the Office of Traffic Safety in California, the DMV. I mean, a lot of players, uh, even the health department, are those departments, all those agencies are at the table sitting down with us trying to work out a plan. But, you know, so resources, your policies, 
on your actions. And that's the way to go. And we're hoping that we start to see things go in a different direction in California on fatalities. But I'm not one for, you know, sort of sitting back and doing business as you've always done it, especially if you keep getting this, the same results and the results are trending in the wrong direction for us. And so for any other transportation agency out there locally at a state level, you have to be aggressive aggressive in tackling these things with resources, policies, and and action. You talk about being aggressive with resources. A good example, I think, is the updated Bicycle and Pedestrian Action Plan that Caltrans had recently adopted, and it has a funding commitment of $100 million, which is no small chunk of change. Tell us a bit more about that plan and how it's going to help California achieve your overall mobility goals, if you would. You know, we we made a decision at Caltrans, uh, you know, earlier this spring to to put a hundred million dollars towards um, active transportation, on top of you know several other pots of money across the state, both local and federal money that already goes to it. So this is a completely new set of funding to help support active transportation. And the way that happened is we have what's our maintenance program that's called the Shop. It's a four-year maintenance plan. Uh, that we set up for our highway system in California and sort of programs out for years. And it's the largest that, that it's ever been in California. So it's a $20 billion plan over the next four years for maintaining our transportation infrastructure. But as we were going through it, some of the engineering staff or leadership staff were informing me, here's X amount of projects out of this $20 billion that has a uh, complete streets element in it. And here's how many have bicycle grates that we're gonna fix or ADA ramps. And I said, well, is there an opportunity, however, to see where we can look at projects that are not really ready to go in within the next four years that won't make the cut, that we can pull the money from those, not that they won't happen, but that we can pull the money from this four-year plan because the projects are likely gonna fall into a fifth or sixth year pull money from that to go do more active transportation for projects that are ready. And it's a long process, challenging process. We have a commission in California, uh, California Transportation Commission, lots of discussions back and forth, but we eventually got there where we pulled a hundred million dollars and they're going to go back into projects and projects, not just projects we want to do at Caltrans, but projects that the community wants to do. We identified 22 projects in California that we think are fitting, but we want to go through a process where we engage stakeholders uh, to help us actually make the final decision on which one of those projects, on which projects in general, get to be a part of that $100 million. And not only do we want to do that, do the engagement to include them in the decision-making process, but we also want to make sure that it's equitable that we're using uh, an aperture that is very considerate of communities that don't have the modes and have been underserved for many years. These are huge steps we're taking as a department to be more balanced and to have more equitable outcomes. But um, it's a pretty exciting period for us as we, we make these big resource changes and policy shifts to help communities with active transportation across the state. Tokes, you talked before about how it's not just big cities like Los Angeles and New York where dependence on other modes of transportation other than automobiles is important, but cities like Akron, Ohio, California, while of course people think of 
places like the Bay Area and L.A. There are also vast areas that are quite rural and not much in the way of infrastructure when it comes for bicycling and for walking. And your previous post in Tennessee, another state that has many rural areas where perhaps there's not as much attention to that. What about some of these rural areas? Are there opportunities to enhance walking and bicycling infrastructure even in more rural areas where people can get around and, and depend on these alternate modes of transportation? No doubt, Bernie. There's, there's no doubt that those opportunities exist. You know, it's one of the things that I've been you know, pretty focused on, like you mentioned, in my last role and even in this current role. I mean, you can go state by state. I mean, a city like here in in California, a city like Stockton, California, is not one of our largest cities. And (laughs) California is always hard to compare to other states. A city like Stockton, another state, is probably a humongous city. But here it's, you know, it's a medium to small size city where, you know, they're trying to make those kinds of investments in active transportation. The challenge in rural areas is the distance. Oftentimes that you'll see that land use developments are a little bit more sparse. They're further apart. But if you can make it happen in the, in the right places where the distances are not, you know, 15 and 20 miles, you have more of that five to seven mile maximum range between, you know, residential areas where people live and commercial development and institutional developments like schools and libraries. If they're within a five to seven mile radius, those things, those trips can happen. And the upside to thinking about transportation in that way is you get multiple bangs for your buck when you can get more people to do that because a lot of cities and a lot of communities, not just on the West Coast or the north, up in the Northeast, have goals that go beyond just making those trips happen because transportation is just a means to an end. I mean, we have larger goals that we're trying to achieve in many cases in our society. So environmental goals, economic goals, health goals, all those things active transportation helps to support. And so when you think about environmental goals, for example, it's obvious the more people you can get out of their cars and to use other forms of transportation, whether it be high-speed rail, or light rail, or in rural communities, you know, you're not going to have, you know, that kind of heavy infrastructure. But if you can get people to walk and bike or use the community bus, you're going to reduce emissions. And not only is that something that People want to argue about whether that's a climate change issue or not and all that that stuff that happens nationally, the big debates we have. But just the basic thing of I want clean air. I want to be able to walk my five-year-old to the park and I have to worry about uh, the air being completely polluted. Or, hey, I'm taking care of my, my senior mom, you know, who's 78 years old and, you know, we want to go outside and she's got reoccurring asthma. I mean, there's so many parts to the environmental angle or the health angle or the economic angle that we know if we do more in smaller uh, suburban or rural communities will help to, to achieve those, those goals we have as a larger society as well. And finally, one of the things I want to ask about with COVID-19 since March, we've seen probably some of the most accelerated changes in transportation that any of us have seen in our lifetime with so many changes in terms of less traffic on the roadways, uh, far fewer riders on transit systems. But at the same time, there's been a greater demand for bicycling. Bikes themselves, they are in short supply. Do you think that this accelerated demand is going to affect the funding and the support for some of these alternative 
modes of transportation, uh, essential modes of transportation, as we talked about earlier, in <laughs> all parts of the state and throughout the United States, for that matter. I think so. At least I'm hopeful that that's the case. Sometimes our industry is very cyclical. I remember, you know, about 10, 15 years ago, actually just 10 years ago, when we had um, the prior economic crisis, you know, gas prices, when they shut up, people shifted away from using their car because some places gas was $5 a, a gallon. And so people shifted from their cars and tried to find alternative modes. And so it's like a crisis hits and everybody moves away, but the crisis levels off and people go back to the usual. Um, and so my hope is that we actually are able to maintain this keen interest, this heightened interest and focus on, on active transportation. I think we can do it. The more we in the the public sector make the investments, I think people will, will stay. Uh, if people feel like it's a viable, it's a safe option, I think people will, will continue to take advantage of it. But I think one thing that we're seeing clearly is that there's a very strong likelihood that the shifts that we're making, a lot of it's going to change the norm for us. You know, the conversation we're having right now, the format that we're having it in, I could be up on the Northeast with you sitting down in a room and we're having this conversation. But I mean, we're thousands of miles apart and this has become a little bit of the kind of the norm for people to communicate this way. And our department, Caltrans, is a department of 21,000 people. And 13,000 at its peak, 13,000 people were teleworking. I mean, if you can imagine that, from, just from Caltrans. And that's become a little bit of the norm. We're expecting mm-hmm. more and more people to stay roughly in that range. We're going to have, for the rest of this year, 75% of our staff, 75% of our staff are going to telework. And so those modes of transportation shifts that we've made as well, where the demand has gone up for biking and walking, Hopefully, when things, quote unquote, come back to a little bit of a normal, uh, we can even still maintain these mobility interests and, and options as well. Our guest on this month's edition of the Ashto ETAP podcast has been Tokes Omashakin. He's the director of Caltrans, as well as the chair of Ashto's Active Transportation Council. Tokes, thanks so much for taking the time out to chat with me today. Absolutely, Bernie. Thanks for, thanks for inviting Caltrans. Thanks for inviting me to, to be a part of the conversation. You do an excellent job. Thank you.